The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. You'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, eyes wide open, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Okay, on the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Welcome to this week's edition of the Ellis Martin Report. Join me now for an interview with Michael Nelson, the Vice President of Operations for Nobilis Health Corp, trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol NHC.to. Nobilis Health strategically partners with physicians in the development and management of ambulatory surgical centers, or ASCs, with the mission of providing superior medical care, increased patient satisfaction, and lower cost for health care delivery. Nobilis, under its previous name Northstar Healthcare, recently acquired Athos Health for $34 million. Athos, based in Dallas, focused on the marketing and delivery of specialized healthcare services in seven states. Michael, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Give us a snapshot of your background, if you don't mind. A little bit of a traditional healthcare operations background. Got a degree in operational management from TCU up in Fort Worth. I came down for grad school to Houston. I got an MBA and MHA focused in healthcare administration. Did a fellowship in the medical center at Harris Health. Had a chance to kind of see big, huge, multi-billion-dollar health system from a corporate standpoint and from a ground-up standpoint at individual facilities. Ran group practices, interventional cardiology practices for a little bit. I guess this past year moved over to Nobilis and have oversight for our operations and oversight for our facilities across our markets. It seems like you have a fairly broad scope of responsibilities. With alone just your experience in the construction of medical facilities, your presence is integral in Nobilis's future expansion aspirations. Actually, kind of nice to have a little bit of background here and there all over the place. We just started at 501A, that is a not-for-profit healthcare organization focused on physicians. A lot of the large major health systems have moved that model, becoming more of an integrated health system, allowing us to actually employ physicians, bringing them into that model. Group practice background is definitely helpful. That's going to allow us to kind of expand and, and have another option for a lot of our physicians and surgeons out there. Construction-wise, I had a chance to be part of about a $350 million capital construction program at previous health system at Harris Health. I had a little bit of construction, actually started how since I was very young, uh, kind of construction industry came from that background with family and actually where I get interested in healthcare. When you go into a hospital with a general contractor and just kind of see how it's set up, if you can figure out how to run one of these things, you can kind of do anything. It is one of the most wonderful places to be. Things like a little bit of organized chaos, but we have the highest cognitive industry and everyone has their place to go, knows what to do, and we provide excellent, excellent patient care. So having a look at that background is pretty important from patients flow standpoint, looking at growth opportunities, which we have been pretty significant here in the last year since I've been there. Went from about a $31 million revenue to about 83 this past year, 2014, and we're projecting about 147% increase this year to around $205 million of revenue. So rapid, rapid growth and need a lot of different people with a lot of different backgrounds to help move that forward. 
Can we look forward to seeing more neighborhood-oriented ASCs, especially in areas of high-density retiree or senior populations in the future? We are really becoming more of an integrated health system. We have focused on looking for hospital opportunities. We do have the ASCs that serve our different markets. With the integration of our APHIS group, which we just acquired, gives us a little more visibility into about seven states now where we have relationships and or owner-operate facilities. And then we are focusing on a lot of ancillaries. Historically, we've been focused strictly on outpatient centers and outpatient surgery. Now we have an opportunity and through our direct consumer program, marketing program, patients always have a place to go now, especially in Houston where we just had interest in the hospital in Bel Air. That patient that may have back pain can come in and see our pain doctor, but if it's a place that they need to have inpatient surgery or inpatient care, we have a place for them to go now. That's really the focus. We are looking to expand our market. We are looking to expand types of services that we provide. And again, becoming that a little more of that integrated health system focus on ancillary services. Past year, we've got an arrangement where we have urgent care centers and MRI centers up in the Willowbrook area that help integrate with our health system. We want to have a place to call home for our patients. What have you been tasked with for the next couple of years? I imagine in your line of work, long-term planning is crucial. It is. We've certainly tried to do that. It changed quite significantly in the last year. We've been presented with some fantastic opportunities. Our leadership team and with Dr. Kramer and Harry Fleming, we've really been able to identify good new opportunities and, and go after them quickly. With the addition of Chris Lloyd moving into the CEO role now and with the huge marketing group and capabilities of APHIS, we've been able to stretch that quite significantly. We now have visibility and, like I said before, to about seven states now. Looking at growth opportunities, certainly important to have that good strategy strategic plan and get operational plans in place. We try to do very solid operational plans at each facility, as well as kind of roll that up to a system-wide perspective. And when I mentioned that $205 million projected revenue for 2015, that was really just the consolidated from the Nobilis Healthcare and APHIS integration together. Just recognizing a few synergies there, that does not include any growth opportunities. So anything above and beyond that, we're certainly hoping to recognize as well. How is the landscape of emergency care center construction changing? A little bit different. Freezing emergency centers have been quite a, a hot trend here in Houston. The last time I heard, we had about 56 around Harris County. We've seen them pop up in many other states and in our markets as well. Really, the thought process behind the laws that were set in place in a few new states have passed one. Colorado, Utah, I believe, Arizona. A few of those, they're already starting to see freezing yards pop up. And the thought process behind that was to really try to expand access to care out in, in Texas. It's a 35-mile fly radius requirement. You have to have a contract with hospitals. You follow CMS and EMTALA guidelines. It is really try to get expand access. Well, we found a, a little bit of an opportunity to place them in good, solid demographic areas where they good pair mixes, where they can jump in, take a very, very high-paying population next to urgent care centers and other things like that. Certainly different approach on where they can go, but they're going to come into that emergency center, be seen right there very close to their home, and still contracted and got real transfer relationships with the big hospitals so they can transfer those in. We currently don't have any freestanding ERs. We do have our emergency center at our hospitals, which is required, of course, and do see patients through there. Something that we don't have in the strategic plan right now, but certainly you're always open to look at new opportunities. And Houston is pretty saturated right now, but there's a lot of hospitals and a lot of healthcare systems that are looking to buy up those freestanding emergency centers and make them part of their system a little bit more integrated. So we'll continue to look at that landscape and look at those opportunities as well. What I've learned from interviewing your management team is that marketing is a strategic component of your growth strategy at Nobilis, and it accounts for a great deal of your success. 
How does marketing factor into what you do? It really is a phenomenal support. That is truly our solid competitive advantage in our market. With ACES acquisition, with Chris Lloyd and team coming on board, it's taken our programs to a new level. It's reduced our cost per acquisition for patients, and it's allowed us to reach a huge population. We've got a significant percentage of those patients that are coming into our facilities from out of state. And so we're able to really kind of go national with this program. From an operations standpoint, it's great support because a lot of our doctors that may not have huge volumes, we can definitely help source some of those patients into our health system. It's great for our programs to help keep volume in and we're able to reach out to that patient directly. It's critically, critically important. And again, like I said, going out to 11 different markets in seven states now, it's been a huge, huge opportunity for growth for us. And it's allowed us to focus on a lot of those high margin cases and a lot of high margin population to bring it to our system with healthy growth opportunity. So certainly great program, great for the community, great for our markets and great for the health systems overall. And like I said, I think that's really what sets us apart from the other health systems out there. We've got a world-class market company, a world-class marketing team that can reach out and uh, identify a lot of the needs in the community. The minimally invasive procedures you see advertised in our Incur Spine, the North American Spine, Migraine Treatment Centers of America, a lot of those different brands, a lot of needs out there for patients that can seek those opportunities to seek that help at our facilities. It certainly is a positive story, absolutely proving how crucial marketing is to both the survivability and growth of a business like Nobilis. Michael, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed it. Thanks. I've been speaking with Michael Nelson, Vice President of Operations for Nobilis Health, trading on the TSX under the symbol NHC.to. That's NHC.to. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com, or download the entire program on iTunes. Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine, you'd probably like to hear these segments again and again and again. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all of them, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin, and this is only my opinion. Here's what I think. Gold has been overbought for years. It has no business being above $900 an ounce, let alone $1,100 or $1,200 an ounce. And I'm being generous with that statement. I predicted almost a year and a half ago that it would fall back to the $900 level, and I stand by that prediction. Although I thought it would happen sooner than it may. A while make the predictions. But to give a timeline is as about as fruitful as a fortune teller or fortune cookie, for that matter, predicting when you'll win the lottery. You may, in fact, win it someday, but who knows when. Now, to be fair, I've interviewed countless experts over the years on their predictions regarding precious metals. And I've got to say, you can't make any hard timeline predictions, people, because anything will happen at any given time. So stop it. Cut it out. Don't give a date. The odds are not good either way. Should you own physical gold and silver as a hedge against a soft dollar? First of all, is the dollar soft? Really? You can own physical gold and silver if you want to, I suppose. But on what planet will you be spending those metals or coins on commodities that you buy and need every day? Not this planet, not Earth, not anytime soon. Probably not in your lifetime only in a past lifetime, and one going back quite a long time, for that matter. 
The only way you'll use gold or silver coins as a commodity to buy and sell is if it becomes cool to do so, or if Apple decides to make an iGold or iSilver coin that has some kind of magic associated with it. It is just not going to happen. Now, I think everyone, in a sense, should own gold and silver only because they are a great accoutrement with regard to fashion and jewelry, etc. Home accents in gold and silver, wherever you can. Anything you can plate with these items. That perhaps would drive the price up or keep it up, should it become a trend to own these metals for vanity purposes. For instance, I'd love to have a pair of gold glasses. Is there such a thing as bluish gold? My favorite color. Perhaps not, but if there were... Oh yeah, bring it on. Has gold been coupled to commodities such as oil? Well, recently Frank Holmes said that with $40-ish oil, gold is doing very well at its current price. We really shouldn't complain. Yes, gold is on the surface doing very well at $1,150 an ounce, Frank. However, using the logic presented in that statement, check this out. When was oil last at $40 a barrel? Let's go with 11 years ago in 2004. Since Frank is using oil and gold in a marriage of sorts, let's now take a look at the price of gold in 2004. I did some quick research and I came up with $435 an ounce approximately at some point during that year for the shiny metal that augments the watch that I'm wearing right now. By that logic, the logic that well-respected analyst Frank Holmes is using, and I say that in sincerity, and I'm not going to dispute that logic, gold is currently doing very, very well at $1,150 an ounce. But again, using this logic, gold is doing so well that it really doesn't belong where it's at. The coupling logic that Frank is using should have gold well below my own prediction of $900 an ounce. Of course, gold is currently at $1,150. And if you own it, perhaps you should now sell it because it doesn't belong where it's at. It never belonged permanently at these rates because it was and is coupled to oil for some reason, and perhaps now it belongs at $400 or $500 an ounce, not where I predict it will be at $900. Take your profit. Those of you who are in it to win it, take your profit. There's a huge disparity between gold and oil right now, and if you bought it higher prices than it's at now, if you bought it dollars $1,600, $1,700 an ounce, maybe it's time to take a loss. There's a huge disparity, like I said, between gold and oil right now. Something is way overbought. You can't eat gold and silver. You can't run your automobiles on it. There's nothing you can do with gold other than wear it or adorn your faucets with it. Even if it's the world's oldest currency, we don't live in that world anymore. The U.S. dollar as a world currency will survive, no matter what the Chinese and the Russians and others may or may not have in mind. Why? I have no idea for certain. Because English is still the international language of aviation? Because dollars are preferred currency for trading in places such as Cuba, Venezuela? Because the greenback is still key? Because when speculative oil and precious metal prices fall, you've got a strong dollar. Because it's in everyone's best interest with regard to banking and or the Fed if the dollar is strong. And if gold was ever manipulated up so as to draw in those latter-day speculators, it has been taken down by those same people that caused the manipulation, and they're far from being done with it. And what's even more interesting about the downward trend of gold is that it's not overdramatic. It's paced. It's less dramatic than the upsurge itself. It's less volatile. A pace decline in prices means that there is less volatility and a market perhaps you can trust. Shorting gold in the short term may be viable. And there are those that are doing it. Betting on gold in the long term? Well, 
that was done and it began seven to ten years ago or more and that cycle seems to be over i don't think we've seen our bottom yet and unlike the real estate market which did bottom it may not come back gold may not come back why would you go back to something that is out of favor once burned twice shy why would the fund managers and institutions that banked on gold taking heavy losses for their clients why would they bring them back in again and further risk their credibility their reputations and their savings no one smart would isn't there a supply and demand issue with regard to gold and silver isn't that in play okay there's a supply and demand issue if there is no gold or little gold and it is true it's not like you can make any more gold whatever gold is on the earth is a finite amount you can't make more and what exists won't disappear therefore it's finite however has all the gold that there is on the planet been mined Mm, I don't think so. So I'm going to say no. There's gold in them, thar hills, rivers, and valleys in many, many places. I know it. It's been pointed out to me by many gold exploration companies that have not taken the gold out of the ground. They all had a plan for their discoveries, and that plan is to prospect their claims and properties, identifying a resource and parlaying that resource to the major miners for development and mining. But guess what? Those miners, those big miners, have been scaling back, laying off cutting back production, divesting of their properties. I'm not saying that all the smelters and mills have shut down. No, not true. As long as there are weddings and watches being made in gold-plated Rolls Royces, there will be gold production. And there are some industrial and medical uses for gold as well. Let's not forget that, but not like silver. Would gold be a proper hedge on a collapsing dollar? Well, no one really wants the dollar to collapse. Not when we are growing our population in this country. Not when we've been printing so many of these dollars. And certainly when the euro is in difficulty, which it is, and the ruble is in difficulty. None of these things have any sort of serious chance of being a threat on that dollar. Oh sure, yes, the Chinese are going to boost the value of their own yuan. But they can do that. They have a massive population that hasn't traded for, for years, for decades, for centuries. They can do that without any threat to the dollar, but they will not threaten their own holdings in U.S. dollars by attacking our market, a market that has supported them, I might add. This currency and culture and country is so resilient, it's nothing short of amazing. Perhaps one day we'll have less actual paper cash on our person. Many of us do now, relying on bank cards and such. But will we trade in anything other than a fiat or digital fiat currency like the dollar? I'm going to go with no. Gold is not finite enough. We can't account for all of it. We'll never be able to. It's not like accountants can go through it and quantify all of it. Let us all know where it lives. It's shiny and fun to look at and play with. But as long as we don't eat it or clothe ourselves with it, as long as the local 7-Eleven doesn't take it in exchange for a smoothie, all it is is a speculative metal and it has no business trading where it is today or last year or certainly the year before that. No business. What about platinum and palladium? Other precious metals that are more rare than gold? Those are industrial metals that are used in automobiles and machinery. There's a lot less platinum and palladium than gold. The price of these metals should trade higher and I believe they won't experience the kinds of lows that gold will. Lows that were in play when again oil was at $40 a barrel or less. And that's where oil is heading again. Why will oil head back to where it once was? Because really there's plenty of it. And the speculation play that the market manipulators deployed is done. 
It's not sustainable anymore. You can only sustain a market con for a while before it runs out of steam. And oil had no business being over $100 a barrel, not with so much of it available. We really don't know when it will run out. And if it's gone, perchance, in 100 years, which I seriously doubt it will be, that's nothing that we need to think about today. And in 100 years, most likely, we'll be using oil a great deal less than we are now. The demand will be so much less. So, boom, cheap oil indefinitely. Hallelujah. What's not cheap, really? Smartphones. They are not inexpensive items, and yet practically everyone I know has one or two. And they'll replace them every few years or so, and they can be as much as $700 a pop. And we use them all the time. These phones and quasi-handheld computers are devices that we use. We don't use gold like we use a smartphone. An Apple stock is at $124 a share. And Google, something we use perhaps more than Apple devices, is at $564 per share while gold stocks are really quite dead. When will gold stocks return? When every Apple device is plated with gold. That's when gold stocks will return. The things that everyone must have because they want them, because they're enticed to buy them, like the new iWatch, those things we'll be buying and putting our money into cheerfully. We will stand in line to buy these items. We will sweat and freeze to buy these items. Look, oil has a lot less wiggle room and so does silver. Both have more than halved themselves during the couple of years. The gold and silver ratio along with oil is not so in sync with each other that these halving trends are going to simultaneously occur with gold, but it will happen. I don't know exactly when, but it will happen. There's plenty of downward headroom left for gold than oil and silver right now, so you won't see those dramatic downtrends with oil and silver. A lot of that's taken place already. It may continue to happen, but gold has a lot more room. Wiggle room for loss. I expect silver and oil to level off before gold does completely, and yet I won't put a timeline on any of these predictions. Now, I've covered gold as a commodity and a stock during the rise and now the fall of it. I can only hope that those of you that have been following this journalist have been wise with your investment dollar. I've never recommended that you purchase anything. You do that entirely of your own volition. I will suggest this to you as you may or may not exit gold and or silver. I may suggest that you consider real estate. Why? Because we're not making any more land and people need to live somewhere and the borders are not closing in this country anytime soon. On the contrary, they're opening up both to wealthy and displaced foreigners alike. These people have to live somewhere, either in existing housing or housing yet to be built. Weather will bring many thousands of individuals to the South and the West just as it's always done. In addition to foreign investment and speculation, our own indigent population will move to a warmer client, or shall I say continue to move. And it's not an unrealistic scenario for those socked in by snow and cold this winter. It's doable, and this last winter has been indeed memorable. So many factors in play for real estate, and in the country's largest urban areas, areas such as New York and even beautiful Los Angeles, there's an upward trend in real estate sales and development. People are coming in. The real estate bubble did happen, and it popped back in 2008-2009, and yet it's quite possible that the comeback after the mortgage lending shakeout is sustainable given opportunity for foreign investment coming from all over the world. Asia, India, China, Latin America, Russia, and I predict Europe. Sure, anything can happen during these next weeks, months, and years, but as long as I have to use some form of American currency, whether it be coin, cash, or digital dollars, gold will never be worth what it is today again. And when our cash is no good, the Lord help us, 
It won't matter anymore. Is it time to sell? You be the judge. I'm Ellis Martin, and this has only been my opinion. Getting hungry? Eat knowledge. Find it at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Contact our sponsor companies directly. They're on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Welcome to the omnipresent, ubiquitous Ellis Martin Report. And I say ubiquitous because we're everywhere, and tonight we're talking about my favorite place to be, and that's music. We're broadcasting from my fortress of solitude, inviting you into it, but not literally never show up at my door. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you're invited. That means you and everyone listening. I'm speaking with and enjoying the sounds of Susan Scheller, singer, songwriter. Susan, welcome to the program. Greetings. Now, we will be consuming uh, a little bit of wine, so you will occasionally hear a clink on the table, (laughs) and maybe some laughter throughout. (laughs) I met Susan through, let's just say, a group of mutual friends. (laughs) 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 Nothing like Facebook. And Susan and Some other mutual friends have performed at my gallery, and I am completely enthralled and in love with you vis-a-vis your music. Oh, thank you very much. Susan, welcome again to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Short-term memory lapse, the 70s. That's, I've already welcomed you, I realize. Fabulous. <laughs> I feel welcomed. Now, you're one of the very few people in my life that has uh, almost moved me to tears or something or another just by listening to the sound of your singing voice. Who are you and how did you get to be like this? Oh, I, don't, I couldn't begin to tell you. I was kind of thinking about that question. I Honestly, i just like to say... At a young age, uh, I think I've just always been singing, and many years went by. When I moved from New Jersey to California, I was at a grocery store, and they had a bank in the grocery store, and I was cashing a check, and the woman asked me my name, and I said, you know, Susan Scheller, and she said, oh, I knew it was you. And I said, what do you mean? She said, you know, you're Bob's daughter. I'm your aunt, long lost so-and-so. And she said, I never met a child that had a speaking voice like yours. <laughs> when I heard that voice, I knew it was you. And I'm honestly going to tell you, I haven't seen her for about 30 years. Maybe I'd went, met her once or twice. So I guess what I mean is I think I've always sort of just been singing. Now, if you don't mind me saying, I hear and I see a little bit of emotion in response to my question in your answer. What is that connected to? Uh, not really sure. Okay. Is that an awkward question? No. I mean, right. I remember being very young and uh, the babysitter telling my mother that I could sing and uh, her saying, you know, okay. And she said, no, no, you don't understand. Susan is really singing. So my mother said, you know, okay. And then uh, one, you know, shortly after that, I had been watching some opera, it was Hansel and Gretel, and then I wandered upstairs and there was kind of like a cavernous um, staircase with the high ceiling from the 70s and they always put that cheesy chandelier in the middle, you know, and I started to sing the opera that I had heard and my mother just about mouth dropped to the floor and she said, yeah, she's singing, (laughs) Susan is singing. 
Has your singing style changed, the sound of your voice changed over the last, uh, you know, since those, naturally, you, you were a young lady, you were a little girl, and you're still a young lady, but what has been the evolutionary process from back then to now? I mean, there's a, just a whole heck of a lot of soul in what I hear, and, and power. Was that always there? Well, I want to say I think the power was always there, and I think the tone was always there, but I think... You know, obviously the transition from childhood to adulthood is going to change things. I think steeping yourself in different kinds of music and input equals output and picking consciously and subconsciously what you like, what you're going to keep. Like the phrase being a shell picker of the pickiest kind. I stole that from a Nora Jones song. You know, you pick what you want in your palate. Sometimes you don't pick it and it's just there. But I think that's what the transformation is just growing you know and experiencing and and living living pain and life and I, I will tell you actually I was singing not too long ago at the sagebrush and this woman went up to my father who was visiting and he she said is that your daughter and he said yeah and the woman said to him you have to know real pain to sing like that and I'm here to tell you <laughs> I think she's right <laughs> it's been a bit of a long road but Onward. Does pain motivate you to sing? Well, I think it's the, the catalyst for most great art, don't you? I mean, I'm not saying I dig in to feel bad to write, but it kind of becomes, I think, you know, the therapy for working through it. When I listen to a lot of my songs, I'm not the happiest writer. <laughs> Maybe it's time to try to write something happy. <laughs> it's definitely a process, and if it never went any farther, it would still be my process, and that's what I need to survive. Who were some of the artists on your early palette that may have influenced you along the way? It's so funny because as a child, I just loved Carole King, and I loved Carly Simon, and I loved Linda Ronstadt, and I guess we all sort of have that same you know, range of tone. And um, I listened to a lot of R&B when I was younger. I didn't necessarily know what it was, but uh, I was keeping the company with certain adults who were very steeped in those influences, and I'm sure a lot of that bled in. It's kind of a soul thing, you know. You just kind of feel it, you know. When I think of Carole King, uh, Carly Simon, and Linda Ronstadt, I think of power. I think of them less soulfully than I might think of you. I absolutely agree with you, but as a little kid, that was just sort of my, uh, that's what, what was in my house, you know, and it seems very odd. You know, that was just sort of what was being served at my house, basically, so, you know, I took all that in, and uh, I think it probably wasn't for a little while longer where I started to really gravitate more towards blues and, and R&B, and I've certainly spent a lot of years singing it and sweating it and feeling it and making it up on the spot to where you're just so real and it just comes to you and there's nothing to do but be raw you know just sing it one of the things that had really broken me through just kind of a funny story to me is I got a job my first like super professional job I was singing backup for Dick Dale I was a deltonette with a little Joan Jett haircut and a turquoise blue mini dress with black tiger stripes and turquoise blue suede pumps not kidding. 17 years old. They put me on the stage with him. We were playing somewhere. And uh, he starts to play the guitar. He breaks down the band. He takes this big grandiose guitar solo, you know, with the big... Uh, and then he, like, stabs me with his guitar. And I'm looking at him like, what? <laughs> I look at the girl next to me. I'm like, what does he want? And she's like, 
sing. I'm like, sing what? She's like, sing anything. So I just let out this big anxiety wail. And it was just like this big wild noise came out of me. And everybody went nuts. I was sweating. I mean, I was so terrified. And he had worked me into his show, and it had become like a vocal duo where he would play something, and then I would sing something back. And it was very dramatic and very fun. But that's kind of how I broke in. He just put me on the spot and made me do it. And I didn't even know what the hell he was talking about, you know. So that's kind of how I think I broke through into more of a primal style. If you want to call it primal, it feels primal. I hear from listening to your music the primal aspect of it, but it's, in my opinion, by no means out of control. It's extremely refined, and I, I think you've got to be a perfectionist because that's how perfect your music is. There's not one note out of place. There's no rawness that shouldn't be there. It's controlled primal scream, uh, although scream is a strong word. Uh, are you a perfectionist? That can't be true. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I am so far from being a perfectionist. Um, I wish I could describe to you how much not of a perfectionist I am. I'm sure there are more than three handfuls of musicians in Los Angeles who will tell you that. I'm kind of an in-the-moment type of girl, and many, many times I will just hire people and we'll play without you know rehearsing or I mean that's kind of a common easy thing to do but just play along and whatever's happening in the moment is what's happening and particularly when I'm in the studio it's a challenge because I never play the same thing the same way because I'm always just in it kind of seeing what I can do with it and maybe it'll be better than the last take and then I end up with a bunch of stuff that's all different than the others and then I have to pick and it's it's a challenge and it's difficult for me I've heard you play live I've heard your studio work. We all expect a voice to crack or a note to be there that shouldn't be there along the way, and it just doesn't happen with you. Honestly, I just think I'm on a skateboard and a banana peel. Like, I want to just say I don't even know what you're talking about. That's fine. Fair enough. That's fine. So can you sit down literally, have you done this, just pick up a guitar and just, there comes a song that you didn't know where it came from, but there it is, or a verse. Um, Well, I'll be honest with you. Writing is not always a very easy thing for me, and sometimes it's even stressful. But when I was working on the songs that I put on On the Way to Here, there were all different reasons that those songs came out. It was never a consistent thing. And what was cool about it is there's a song on there, The Wind Knows. You know, I went to sleep, and I had heard this song in my dream, and it was cool, and it was like, the windows, da-da-da-da-da-da. And I thought, wow, I wonder if I can just get up and play that. And I did, and then I thought, okay, cool, I have this little tiny melody, big deal. And then, like, suddenly, just, I'm not kidding, just started to play it, and I'd, I'd just be graphic, but it was like I just, like, barfed out this song. And I just wrote it, and I thought, oh, this is really cheesy. It's like a little rhyme or something. And I played it for my neighbor, and she just kind of stared at me, like, and your point is, you know? because I thought it was really bad, and it just turned out to be one of my favorite songs. It's called The Wind Knows. Well, let's listen to The Wind Knows right now on the Ellis Martin Report with Susan Scheller. We just listened to The Wind Knows from Susan Scheller's album On the Way to Here, and you're going to tell me about that song. What I wanted to say about it was when I recorded it and you were talking about perfection being a perfectionist I had such terrible bronchitis when I sang it 
I'm not even sure I'm on pitch there <laughs> on the opening. <laughs> there are so many little flaws in that CD. It was recorded like by hook or by crook. And the producer I was working with kept getting these bigger gigs. And I didn't ever know if we were ever going to work together again or finish. So I just went for it, you know. Well, a man's favorite stereo is in the vehicle he drives. <laughs> and in the particular vehicle where I have this CD permanently lodged, it sounds perfect. So it's very sure, kind. I'm sure you hear flaws, and you, we all hear our own flaws and see them. But in my opinion, it's very well produced. And we'll talk about the title track later to that album, because sure. it reminds me of a, either a Roy Orbison song or Traveling Wilburys. We might as well talk about it now. Because it's different from every other song on the album And different from every other song I've, I've heard you sing And that song is On the Way to Here I believe you're singing in a motor vehicle That was my Dodge Swinger I was Susan the Chick Singer in her Swinger And it was cute because it said Swinger right on the side of the door Because <laughs> it's a two-door You don't look happy in this photograph It's a great photograph But you just don't look happy Is On the Way to Here someplace that's not a happy place, or are you coming from a place that wasn't happy, if you don't mind me asking? Well, this is the point in a girl's career where she can make up a fabulous lie or just tell the truth. Just tell you the truth, it was the end of the photo shoot, and she said, give me one more, and I was like, whatever. I just looked at her, and she took the picture. And the funny part is, in the actual photo, the whole thing, it's obviously cropped for the cover. You can't see it, but if you enlarge it, there's a kitty cat sitting on the back of my car looking through the window and is actually in the photo. And I, I never saw it before until it was pointed out to me. So it's kind of wild. But yet it's the photograph that you chose, I assume, for your own album. Yeah. Well, I was in my car. I was on the way to somewhere. So we used it. On the way to here. I mean, that's just a song that I wrote about where I was at at the time. It's a very personal song. It took me a long time to realize that you're not going to reinvent the wheel. I'm embarrassed to say, but I always thought I had to kind of come up with some fantastically different and new type of song or music. And I fooled around with a lot of different styles, and then it was time to just relax and write what I wanted to write. And it came out. There's a particular line in the song that makes me laugh every time because I was stuck, and my mother is a poet and a writer, and... Uh, I went over there and I kind of yelled across the kitchen, Mom, you know, we learned to swim upstream. And she screams back, like superheroes in a dream. I'm like, thanks, Mom. <laughs> so, I mean, she's kind of the co-writer on some of these songs. You know, when I get stuck, I call her up. Oh, so she this is genetic, this uh, <laughs> songwriting. Well, she's the poet, and she used to do, like, poetry therapy and all kinds of cool stuff. I'm just the apple. She's the tree. So, yeah, she's kind of fun like that. When I need a rhyme or I, I'm saying something, but I don't know what I'm saying, she, she tells me what I'm saying. <laughs> so then I'm like, oh, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I knew I was close. So, yeah, those songs, yeah, they're very personal. That other song, The Dream, was about a dream that I had, another dream, you know, started to write about it and uh, came out to be one of my favorite songs because at the time the relationship I was in all the information was coming to me in that way about what was what was happening so it's not always something concrete that you can see or understand between people and then when you're sleeping you're kind of working it out and then when you bring that back to the table you find out that's what's going on so 
So your dreams are not only bringing you back to the table, but they are helping you to uh, create your music, if not doing so. And this is common amongst not every artist, but but quite a few. Uh, How much has dreaming influenced your songwriting? Well, if anything, it's the songwriting has influenced my dreaming. I've learned to pay attention. (laughs) That's 22 of sorts. Maybe it's the only time I'm really out of my own way. I have to say, I do feel a bit of a spaz, you know? I feel silly, because there's probably about five million other songwriters out there going, of course, but, you know, to people who don't write, they may not know these things. Um, Particularly, you know, Memphis Radio, I mean, that again is a very personal song, and I don't really want to talk too much about that, but that song means so much to me. I was pulling it from a place that I didn't even know of where those feelings and ideas came from and then later on down the line you go oh right of course and then the songs the more you sing them they kind of reapply to where you're at and I started to realize I needed to change what I'm writing because I'm going to keep getting into some of that same stuff (laughs) some of the other songs on the CD (laughs) yeah but if it works for you uh, musically and there's enough of uh, appreciation of a specific style great right yeah but you look at a song like chains where wings used to be and you know i love that song i mean it's got a a lot of people connect to it and it's got a really comfortable feel and an idea that we all have the blues but it really for me it became kind of a negative affirmation and things did take a bit of a turn and now i do have to say i feel a little superstitious and i tend to sing it in the past tense (laughs) I slip in little, like, past tenses. No one hears them, but I can't keep saying that stuff out loud. If you're not at a certain point in your life that you were when you wrote a specific song, is it harder to sing that song, or does it make no difference with you? I gotta say, it's such a blessing to have songs to sing. It's like putting on your clothes, you know? You're just like, oh, I want to wear this, oh, I want to wear that. But the thing about songs is they're different every time. And I just love to sing them every different kind of way. That's what I love. And I'm so thankful that I have some songs that I wrote. I didn't write for the longest time. It didn't really happen until I was much older. Those songs mean everything to me. That I have them to sing when I'm feeling bad or when I'm feeling in general. (laughs) I'll be honest with you. So that's a healing place you go to. If you're feeling bad, you'll just pick up a guitar and... Oh, those songs are my refuge, yeah. And... Like when I played your gallery, I'm thinking what song it was. Maybe it was Absinthe and Tangerine or something. I had done it completely different than I'd ever done it before. And if you had seen me for the first time, you wouldn't connect any of the things that maybe that you said about that particular performance. But I, I just like to sing them all different kinds of ways. Well, that song really pretty much took me out. Oh, thank you. And uh, let's listen to it right now. Absinthe and Tangerine from Susan Scheller. We've been listening to Susan Scheller. That was Absinthe and Tangerine, a nice tasty combination from her album entitled On the Way Here. Now, I believe, and I'm sure everyone listening to your music believes that you're just absolutely incredible. While I've heard you state that you you know your music is good in so many words, do you really believe in your heart of hearts that you're worthy. 
Well, that's a really big question. <laughs> I didn't think you were going to ask me that one. I absolutely think that I'm worthy. But I will tell you this. It is a challenge to try to get things done in this town or in any town. You know, it takes a village and it takes steeping in a lot of different teapots, so to speak, sometimes to get where you're going. It wasn't really until I met Dave Darling that he could help me pull it all together into something. I had been working on all of those songs, and when I met him, I was actually calling <laughs> I was calling a piano player named Teddy Andrianis, and Dave were sharing a studio at the time, and Dave answered the phone, and I started talking to Dave, looking for Teddy, and we just kind of started to talk a little bit, and then he said, why don't you come over and see the studio? And then we started to work together, and that is when it all started to happen. And um, I think the first song we did was The Dream. And it was so exciting just like to put all like the Indian flute on and all these fun things I wanted to try. And it was really just supposed to be some songwriter demos. And that is why there's kind of sort of different contrasts on the CD. But I started to show it to people that I would meet and they would just start giving me money. Out of nowhere, strangers appeared. There are so many people that I thanked because they were writing me checks to keep working because they believed in me. And I knew I was worthy, you know. But there was a time when I really backed off because I didn't, excuse the metaphor, but like I didn't want to be the one pushing somebody down the crap pile, you know, just to be king of the mountain. King of what? It was just kind of like uh, some of the politics. I don't want to say I wasn't strong. I just... I just didn't want to fight about it. So I kind of stayed more on the artist side of things as opposed to like working into like an L.A. session singer or things like that. They're tough circles to break into. There's not enough room at the top then? Is that what you were saying? Well, I'm not sure what the top was. It didn't look like much of a top to me at the time. But there wasn't enough room for you. Perhaps. Perhaps. You know, I think it's... How nice of you. Is that nice? How nice of you for everyone else. (laughs) Well, I I know that in... Wherever I take it, you know, I am who I am. And if it isn't working in that swimming pool, just try another, I guess. There were a lot of things that I didn't really get involved in. I'm not really sure why, but it was awkward, you know. Do you do a lot of studio work? Not as much as as I had started out doing. And then I really just settled into being more of an artist. The two don't go together? No, mind. they do. I love I love studio singing. Now it's so great because the genre of voice that I have kind of fits more into some of the commercial media that you hear. But back then, everyone's like, can you tame that vibrato? You know, your voice is too big. You're too much your own thing. Do you think you could be more like this? And I did try. It just always seemed like a really tedious process of trying to shove myself into something that didn't fit for me. That sounds funny, but back then, that's how it felt. Now it's different. My range of voice, my style of voice is really popular, and it's much easier. But now I'm kind of farther away from that anyway, so... That's just a decision that wound up on the way to here. Exactly. I mean, I did that CD in 1999, and I just want to say I'm really looking forward to finishing up this new group of songs because it's such a smoother process, and the music just feels so good, and I'm so much older now, and I've lived so much more. It's really exciting. It's like the difference between, you know, plugging in a clock radio to a nuclear bomb, you know. I just wanna I just wanna go in the studio and let it out more. You said you had an interesting tale involving uh, Rodney Crowell, the well-known uh, guitarist and songwriter that's worked with uh, Emmylou Harris for many, many years. Would you like to share that story with us? 
Yeah, I would love to. He's also in the Country Music Hall of Fame. He was inducted a few years back, so that's exciting. My cousin was hiking, and someone needed a ride, so she gave this girl a ride. And while she was driving, my CD was playing, and the woman said, I have a friend who has a concert series. She lives in Texas, but the series is in Santa Barbara, and it's called the Sings Like Hell Concert Series. And whoever this is would be great for that. And she said, well, this is my cousin. Susan. She just said, okay, well, can you get her to give me a CD and I'll send it on to Peggy Jones, who is doing the, uh, the concert series. So we did. I sent it to her right away. And this is when I learned you have to send two CDs because I didn't get it back then. I sent the CD and then a while went by and I get this phone call from Peggy Jones. And she's like, I got your music and I'd love for you to be in the series can you send me a CD? And I said, well, I, I did send a CD. And she said, I know, but what I got was a tape recording, and it didn't even have a phone number on it. So at the last show, I had to go to the edge of the stage and say to the audience, whoever gave me the Susan Scheller tape, would you please come to the stage so they could get in touch with me to have me play the show? Because she had kept the CD for herself, made a tape of it, and sent it on to Peggy Jones. <laughs> That is so. <laughs> so it was kind of funny. So now whenever I send something, I always send two CDs just in case. You know, It's very flattering. And that was a great show. I played a duo with uh, Shane Fontaine, who is a guitar player, singer, songwriter, artist now. And uh, it was a wonderful show. We got to open for Rodney. And it was really the first time I'd ever seen him. And it was his Houston Kid record and tour where he had just kind of been coming back to music. The record he made was a great record. It was full of feeling and stories. And it was all heart. We had a lovely interaction. And then um, recently his uh, autobiography has come out and I read it. And uh, it was neat because there's a lot of things on the record that he has talked about as a child. And he sort of partnered up with Mary Carr, who's one of my favorite writers, who writes about her childhood growing up in Texas. Now they're together writing songs, and that's very exciting, in Austin. And they're actually going to be at Sings Like Hell up in Santa Barbara at the Libero Theater. Uh, they may have just come through this year. So It all started with a Pilford CD. You mentioned Austin. Another yeah. music city is Nashville. We talked about Memphis earlier. You're in L.A. Is that a personal choice with regard to your family and lifestyle, or is it a music choice? Well, I have to speak carefully because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But I think that there would definitely be some other towns that I would like to explore musically. And my home is in Los Angeles, in Ventura County by the sea. How about that? You brought your guitar with you tonight? I brought my guitar. And uh, I'd love to hear a song. Any song you choose to play will be wonderful. Well, I'm going to play a song. It's a new song. Uh, it's called Brass Bed Serenade. And it's the culmination of two love letters. Well, actually, two poems as love letters. One written by me and one written by, I guess you could call him the co-author. His name is Adam Foreman. He wrote me a poem. So I put them all together and I wrote this song. And he still hasn't heard it, so <laughs> I figured I'd play it and then maybe he can hear it. <laughs> he, he lives in Texas. But uh, we're dear friends, and I think that he uh, would really like it. You're not supposed to tell when you write a song that some things can't be helped. Susan Scheller. Queen without your cane 
isn't much of anything When the sun falls down City skyline starts to glow Sounds and sirens Lust and smoke They cover me Like a royal cloak Ghosts drift Out the window And fade away Ice is melting In a glass I wait for you To see how it's passed Feels like forever since you went away Come sing me your brass serenade Play your guitar sweep me away Pour me a drink Be my troubadour And I'll be Susan Scheller, and the name of that song again? Brass Bed Serenade. Brass Bed Serenade, and we're going to hear that on your new album? Yes. Fantastic. Susan, thank you so much for joining me today on the Ellis Martin Report. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me. (laughs) What? It's over? No, it can't be true! What will I do? What will I say? What? Oh, oh, this. (laughs) Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. 
Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Then they run right back to work and get jiggy with getting busy. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. For Ellis Martin, this is Cool Voice Guy. Ciao, babies. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.